from the Samira Foundation, this is Demystifying NMO and Mod, where we bring together the world's foremost experts, the doctors dedicated to studying it, and the patients who live with it every day, with support from Genetech. Welcome back for another episode of the Smire Foundation's Demystifying NMO and Mod. This episode wraps up the show's third season and my first. I'm glad you stayed with us as we grew and I settled in. We've been busy planning season four and have our own ideas, but we would love to hear from you. What topics do you want to learn more about? What challenges are you facing as a patient or caregiver that we can help shine the light on? For clinicians who are listening, what information can we help connect you with? Who do you want to hear from? We definitely want to hear from you. So you can email us at podcast at samirafoundation.org, or you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. The links are all going to be listed below in our show notes. Finally, remember that no matter how you listen to us, subscribe so you get the newest episodes right away. Now for today's episode. You always know fall is around the corner because pumpkin spice lattes have arrived at every coffee shop. But here in the United States, it also signals open enrollment time for organizations when they're updating their employees' health insurance plans or when people are able to make changes in the health insurance exchanges. Now, we can probably all agree that dealing with health insurance can be a hassle for anybody, but switching plans can be especially stressful for people with a chronic illness. So today, I'm joined by Amy Niles of the PAN Foundation. PAN is the Patient Access Network, and it provides financial assistance to Americans to help with health expenses. Now, they're recognized as one of Forbes' top 100 charities, and they've helped people pay for billions of dollars in health care. Yes, billions, with a B. Amy Niles is their Chief Advocacy and Engagement Officer, and as you're going to see, her knowledge and passion make her an incredible advocate and the perfect guest for today's episode. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for coming on to the show today. Really appreciate it. Let's start at the beginning. Can you tell us all about PAN? Sure, and thank you so much for inviting PAN to participate. Uh, today, we have uh, so enjoyed our partnership with the Samira Foundation. It's been truly valuable for the patients that we help. Patient Access Network Foundation, we're commonly referred to as the PAN Foundation, has been around for 20 years. Um, we are a national patient advocacy organization, a charitable foundation that helps underinsured individuals um, who are living with life-threatening chronic and rare diseases um, get the medications and treatments they need. And we do this by assisting with um, their out-of-pocket costs for prescription medications. We also do this by advocating for improved access um, to care um, and affordable care. Today, we operate more than 75 different diseases and funds where we provide assistance to individuals who are living with these chronic conditions. These diseases cover many cancers, lung cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, many chronic diseases, um, and rare diseases as well. In a few areas, we're also providing assistance toward their premiums, insurance premiums. Um, that's in just a few areas. And also importantly, for people who are enrolled in our funds, we have a transportation fund, um, which is important because at the end of the day, we want people to be able to get to their healthcare providers, get to their pharmacies, to pick up their prescriptions, even be able to get to their supermarkets so that they can buy food to stay healthy. So that's an important um, program that we operate. Over the 20 years that we've been around, we've helped more than a million people get access to the treatment they need. 
And we've provided more than $4 billion in financial assistance, which is a lot of financial support. And yet we know that we're only really tapping the surface of the people who need our help. That's amazing. The, the, the reach and the impact is incredible. So you're the Chief Advocacy and Engagement Officer. What does a day in the office look like for you? Uh, that's an interesting question. So I'll take today as a good example. Um, I'm doing a podcast with one of our greatest alliance partners, the Samira Foundation, because at the end of the day, we want people to know about um, the availability of patient assistance. In a couple of hours, I'm going to be having a Hill visit with a member of Congress to talk about some important legislation that we've been advocating for that we hope he will support as well. And then following that, I'm, I'm having some conversations with other patient advocacy organizations about the new CMS guidance that was just issued a couple of days ago regarding one of the Medicare reforms that was passed as part of the Inflation Reduction Act because we all are submitting our comments back to CMS within 30 days. So I have a very, very day, which makes my work really enjoyable. One of the things that I always look forward to, and I don't have this today, but I had it yesterday, is actually speaking to our PAN grantees. So for example, we have a patient and family advisory council that, that's made up of individuals who have benefited from PAN assistance, and we have leveraged their support. They, they participate on panel discussions with us. We have great relationships with them. And so I, I always enjoy the opportunity to speak one-on-one -on -one with our patients. That's incredible. You mentioned your alliance with the Smyer Foundation. How can the PAN Foundation help people with NMO? So I mentioned that we have more than 75 diseases and funds where we provide assistance. One of those funds is for individuals who are living with neuromyelitis, optic spectrum disorder. And so for individuals living with this um, condition, they are able to seek support, um, financial assistance from the PAN Foundation, if they meet certain eligibility criteria. And our eligibility criteria are, are pretty common across all of our disease areas, and they, they differ in a few ways. But for our NMO fund, um, an individual must be being treated for that disorder. Um, they need to be residing and receiving treatment in the United States or one of its territories. And by the way, we don't require citizenship um, documentation. They have to have health insurance that covers medica the medication. So in essence, PAN becomes the payer of last resort. Um, but for this fund, you know, it can be federal insurance like Medicare or commercial insurance. They must have been prescribed a medication that is on our list of medications that are covered. And, and our website um, lists all of our disease funds. It lists all of the medications that are covered. And by the way, that's all FDA approved brand and generic um, medications. And they have to have income that is at or below 500% of the federal poverty level. Now, most people don't know what that, that translates to. So I'd like to give a couple of examples. So for example, um, if you're in a family of two, that, that would mean you have an annual household income of um, at or below 98,600. 
our family four, that goes up to 150,000. So it's, it's fairly generous. So if you meet, say yes to all these eligibility criteria and the fund has um, available funding in it, today it does, um, you're eligible to receive a grant of $4,800 that covers 12 months of your out-of-pocket costs for your medication, deductibles, co-pays, co-insurance. So um, we design our grant amounts to, to meet the majority, if not all, of one's out-of-pocket costs for the year. However, there are, there are circumstances we know where Patients may run out of money sooner, and in, in that situation, um, they are eligible to apply for a second grant during the 12-month period. And then about a month prior to when that 12-month period ends, the, the patient will get a notice and they can apply for a second grant uh, for the next 12, uh, 12-month period. You're probably going to ask, well, how does a patient apply? Um, it's really easy. We We... There's so many barriers to accessing care. We, we try to eliminate all those barriers and make this process as easy as possible. And it literally just takes a few minutes. So people call us. We have a call center. Um, many, many people in our call center who are there every single day, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to help patients um, enroll in our funds. And that number is one 866 316-7263. People can also apply online very easily, and they can start that process at panfoundation.org. Another um, URL is panapply, all one word, .org. The patient will be walked through the questions. They, you know, if they answer yes to all the questions and we have funding, they will know instantaneously that they have been approved for a grant and they will have an ID number that they'll be able to take to the pharmacy counter and start benefiting from um, the assistance that we provide right away. It always seems like getting through an application process and then the wait afterwards is always terrible. There's so much anxiety involved with it. So it sounds like you've really streamlined it and made it easy to get through. Yeah, and, and there's, you know, if, if I had to summarize the five pieces of information that patients will need to provide to us, it's it's their diagnosis, it's the name of the medication that they need help with, it's their healthcare provider's name and his or her contact information, will need their health insurance, because again, we're the payer of last resort, and their ID number, um, will need the patient's name email and social security number, and finally just their adjusted gross um, household income. Um, but we don't ask for any documentation. So again, it is quite easy and within minutes, they'll know if they are approved or not. That's fantastic. So as of right now, PAN doesn't offer a program for people with MOG. Any advice for someone if they cannot find their illness in the Fund Finder? And can you even talk a little bit more about the Fund Finder itself? Yeah, Fund Finder is a great tool. It's a great tool for patients, for healthcare providers, even staff in call centers and in patient advocacy organizations. Um, there are nine organizations, we are one of them, that provide copay assistance. 
it's really hard for anyone to know who these nine organizations are and what programs they offer. And in fact, collectively, the, these nine organizations, including PAN, provides assistance across more than 200 patient assistance programs. So we wanted to do something about four years ago that would help patients and providers. And we created a web app called FundFinder, um, and people can register for it really easily at fundfinder.org. And what we did through technology is just bring all of this together in one place. So very easily, you can see what organizations are offering assistance in what programs. But here's, here's the nice, um, useful way that FundFinder is used. This could be for NMO. Um, actually, we're, we're the only patient assistance um, organization that provides assistance in this area. But let's, let's just take another um, uh, illness. It could be asthma. It, it could be any other chronic condition. You'll get to see what foundations offer assistance. And let's just say for argument's sake, there are three patient assistance organizations that offer assistance, but maybe today we're all closed, which means we don't have um, any funding today. Um, if you register for fundfinder.org, and if you say, I'm interested in this particular disease, you'll get an email notification when one of the foundations opens up. And that's really important because it's going to prompt you to go to that foundation as quickly as possible to apply for assistance. So it's, it's a great great tool. One of the things I didn't mention um, about our funds, which is important for patients to know, is some of our terminology. So when a patient goes on to panfoundation.org, goes to NMO, or goes to any one of our other disease funds, they're going to see terminology like it's open, closed, and our wait list. Okay. If, if the fund is open, like NMO is today, we have funding available one can apply and one can get assistance. If the fund is marked closed, it means that unfortunately today we've run out of funding. Hopefully soon we can reopen the fund, but that is a prompt for the patient to put their name onto our wait list and there'll be an easy way to do that. That is really, really important because the wait list is first come first serve. So when we're able to reopen that fund because we've got funding in, we're going to reopen it first to people on our wait list. So it's really important for patients to add their names to the wait list if they find that that fund is closed. Excellent. Along with aligning resources to help people pay for medical care, um, a large part of what PAN does is advocacy. And you mentioned, touched on that a little bit earlier. I was hoping we could talk about some of the important issues that patients are facing when it comes to accessing medical care. So to start with, the Inflation Reduction Act had some important provisions um, that will affect people on Medicare. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that? Happy to. And CAN uh, Foundation advocated for these reforms for many, many, many years. So we were happy to see that six Medicare reforms were included in the Inflation Reduction Act, which passed just about a year ago um, on August 16th, 2022. Two of those reforms are already in effect. They went into effect at the beginning of this year. And that is, for, and this is all for people on Medicare, um, that there would be no co-pays associated with vaccines. 
That was a really important um, reform that got um, passed and implemented January 1st. The other um, important reform that's already in place is the cap on insulin, where people um, will not pay more than $35 a month um, for their insulin. Great reform. As we look toward January 1st of 2024, so just a few months away, there's two more reforms that go into effect. One is an expansion of the federal, what's called low income subsidy program or extra help program. This is for people who have lower income, up to 150% of the federal poverty level. And it's a little complicated program and I won't go into all the, all the, the details, but currently um, there are two programs. One is partial and one is full. And, and what the Inflation Reduction Act did was eliminate the partial program. So now more people will have access to the full program, which means more people will have the majority, if not all, of their out-of-pocket costs covered. Again, up to 150% of the federal poverty level. The second one is really important um, because it is the first step towards significant, significantly lowering out-of-pocket costs for prescription medications for people on Medicare. And this is above that 150% um, level because we hope that those individuals will apply um, for the extra help program. Without getting too, I always like to use the term wonky, but um, trying to simplify this, Today, the Medicare benefit is pretty complicated. Today, if you are, um, if you have spent up to about $3,100 in out-of-pocket costs, and for many who are living with a chronic condition and they've been prescribed a specialty medication, that's not very hard to do. So if they've spent up to about $3,100, they are then um, propelled into what's called the catastrophic phase of their benefit. And now they're spending 5% they need to spend 5% of that drug list price until the end of the year, and there is no limit. And up to this point, Medicare beneficiaries have been the only group in the United States that does not have a limit on what they spend out of pocket for their prescription medications. So what goes into effect this coming January 1st, that 5% goes away, and there, now there is a limit. And in essence, people on Medicare will not pay more than around $3,250 for their medications. So big improvement. The What happens in 2025 is significant. So it sounds like it's a really far away, but it's you know 16 months away. In 2025, there will be a cap of $2,000. So no one on Medicare will spend more than $2,000 a year for their prescription medications. That's a big improvement. Again, especially for people who have been faced with such high out-of-pocket costs right, for special right. medications. On top of that, the health plans must offer people, Medicare beneficiaries, the opportunity to spread out their costs throughout the benefit year. So right now what happens is that often Medicare beneficiaries are faced with really high costs in January when their deductibles reset. Now they'll have the opportunity to spread that out. So imagine if you, um, you know, were faced with high costs and you opted in to spread out these costs at the beginning of the plan year. In theory, it's not gonna be this simple, but in theory, you might have 
$167 max for every month, that $2,000 divided by 12. Again, it's not going to happen quite that easily because we like we like to do things in a complicated way when we <laughs> implement reforms. But what's important is that now patients have a cap and patients will can have greater predictability and affordability with this opportunity to more evenly spread these costs. Well, those are all significant changes. They, they are steps in the right direction. That said, we know that there are many, many individuals who will still find the $2,000 to be a challenge. Um, we know, you know, people of color, people of low income, people with chronic conditions will still have challenges, but it, it is a step in the right direction. Yes. So last fall, I was attending the Pennsylvania Rare Disease Advisory Council Summit, and copay accumulators were mentioned, and I wasn't very familiar with it. So as I started reading about them, I came across alternative funding programs, and they seem very similar, very complicated, and very determined to shift healthcare costs away from insurance companies and onto the patients. Can you tell us a little bit more about them, um, like what, what they do and, and how do they impact patients? Thank you for asking me this question, and I agree with you. It is, it's a way for plans to try to lower their costs, shift the cost to the patient, and at the end of the day at PAN, we believe these are all harmful programs to patients and should be banned. They are complicated. Um, a plan that has a copay accumulator um, program in place is basically saying that a patient can seek financial assistance from a third party or anywhere else, for example, a manufacturer coupon, but they're not going to count the value of that coupon toward a patient's deductible or annual out-of-pocket limit. So let's let's take an example of, of a patient who may have a deductible of $2,500 and they have um, sought assistance from a manufacturer and the value of that coupon is $500. If that patient's plan does not have a copay accumulator um, policy in place, um, that $500 coupon will count and the patient will have to pay $2,000, not their full $2,500. If there's a copay accumulator policy in place, they, and they've used that $500, it doesn't matter, it's not counting, they're liable for the full $2,500. So it puts more financial burden onto the patient. It, it takes them longer to reach their deductible. And we think these policies are somewhat discriminatory because it's affecting people who have serious chronic illnesses, they're going to the manufacturers for assistance for specialty medication. Likely, there may not be a generic equivalent, and it may be the only place they can turn for assistance. One of the problems we, we know exists is that there's very limited transparency in the health plan documents around copay accumulators. Patients may not even know that they exist. And language is, is used that often is, is quite confusing. So the plans might actually say they have a copay accumulator program. You can find that in their language. But they could also use terms like 
a benefit plan protection program or out-of-pocket protection program or a primary coupon adjustment. So in a patient's mind, when they read this, it may actually sound really positive, but it's not positive. It's hurting the patients. So when it comes to copay accumulators, it's important to know what's in that patient's plan. Um, importantly, um, there is federal legislation that we advocate for that will ban these programs, and it's called the Health Copays Act. And we're working hard alongside many, many other organizations to get this bill across the finish line. It has bipartisan support, um, tremendous support from the patient advocacy community. And we're hoping to see some movement, you know, maybe even by the end of this year. Right now, we know that there are 19 states and uh, District of Columbia and Puerto Rico that have passed their own legislation banning these practices, but federal legislation is needed. Now, alternative funding programs is, is another matter. It is very, very complicated. I'll try to make this as simple as possible. Um, these are egregious practices on the part of plans and PBMs. What employer-sponsored health plans are doing with the encouragement of PBMs is this is a way to lower our costs. We're going to say that specialty medications, maybe in a particular therapeutic area, or maybe across the board, um, are deemed a non-essential health benefit, and we're not going to cover them. Now, that's problematic in and of itself because the plans know that prescription medications is an essential health benefit. Specialty yeah. medications should, be, should not be any different. But they're saying we're not going to cover it. It's a non-essential health benefit, but employee, patient, if you need financial assistance, we're going to refer you to a company called an alternative funding vendor who can help you find assistance. Now, Brian, by the way, these vendors are not insurance companies. They're separate companies that have their own financial relationship with the health plan. And what they're doing often is asking the patient for their personal information. Sometimes they're asking them to, to sign a power of attorney which is problematic, so that they can help get assistance. Sometimes they're importing medications from outside the United States to help the patients. Another way it's problematic. They're trying to go to the manufacturer, charities like PAN to find assistance. Sometimes they're successful, sometimes they're not. But from our perspective, we deal directly with their patients. We deal directly with their healthcare providers. These vendors are often not authorized to act on behalf of patients. So it is problematic on many, many different levels. At the end of the day, it's, it's another way where patients are getting caught in the middle and are not getting access to the medications they need. So there's no legislation yet to ban these programs. Um, we're doing all we can to educate people, um, other patient groups, provider groups, patients, people on the Hill about these practices. It has um, raised a red flag with several federal agencies that are looking into these practices, Department of Labor, Federal Trade Commission, the FDA regarding the importation matter. So we know that it's, um, 
it, it's gained the attention of agencies. And so again, I think um, patients need to be aware that if, you know, from their employers, if they're told that um, their medication is deemed non-essential, there may be an alternative funding program at play here. It's absolutely predatory. Yeah, there, there are many words that have been described <laughs> that have been used to describe <laughs> these practices. Um, just like the copay accumulators, maximizers, alternative funding programs need to be banned. So you mentioned um, PBMs, and that's pharmacy benefit managers, is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Oh, okay. A yeah. couple of follow-up questions for you. Are these copay accumulators and uh, AFPs, are they found primarily in certain types of insurance? Is it private insurance, like through an employer, or are they in the ACA marketplace programs? Yeah, the, the copay accumulators are, are on the ACA market plan. So this is primarily affecting people with the commercial insurance. The AFPs um, are more of the employer-sponsored health plans. And, you know, what the PBMs are doing is, you know, saying to these plans, hey, you know, you have employees that have chronic illnesses might be a small percentage of the, the people that you help, but they're going to require specialty medications. And that's where your costs are going to rise because there's such high costs associated with the specialty medications. So this is a way that you can lower your costs. The alternative funding vendors can help, um, you know, find the individuals, the assistance they need from the manufacturers and from charitable foundations. It's really marketed as, hey, this is a great benefit for you and, and your employees, but the mechanics behind it are are not are pretty simple. Correct. It's marketed as a way to lower your costs. The there's no transparency for the employee. Um, so when the employee finds out that that specialty medication is not covered, you know, they go they're shunted over to a vendor. And as I described, there's all kinds of issues that that result. At the end of the day, it could be that the employer, that the employee gets the medication they need, either from the pharma, maybe they go back to the plan and through an exception process, they get the, uh, the approval. But what happens, even when they get the approval, weeks have gone by, and they've had a big delay in starting treatment, which is problematic for patients living with serious illnesses. So what we're doing all we can to raise the attention around these programs. And as I said, ultimately, it might be that legislation is needed to ban them. With that delay of, of treatment, not only the lack of the medication, but most people who are chronically ill, stress becomes a major trigger for flare-ups Absolutely. and things like that. So you're just Absolutely. fueled to that fire. You mentioned transparency a few times, and it definitely seems to be lacking. Um, when I was doing research on it, it was very tricky to find information about copay accumulators. So if you were to sit down and uh, read through the jargon and the legalese um, and try and find out if your plan has one, can you call the plan? Do they have to tell you, or is it all just very masked and you find out when it's usually too late? Sometimes that happens, and that's the problem. You find out when you get to the pharmacy counter and you realize that drug coupon has not been counted toward your deductible, and in order to 
walk away from the pharmacy counter with your prescription filled, you have to pay 500,000 or even more dollars. So that is problematic. Yes, I think patients um, can call their plan and ask if they have a copay accumulator program in the plan. They, you know, they can ask directly using those words. They can say things like, will, if I get assistance from a manufacturer, will that assistance count toward my deductible and out-of-pocket maximum? That's another way of, of asking the same question. And it should be easy for the plan to say yes or no. It's very important to make sure that we know the questions that we need to ask. Exactly. Or that there's there's no wiggle room, that they have to give us yes. that information. So you had mentioned about um, legislation making these type of programs illegal. And towards the end of the Trump administration, rules were approved, giving healthcare insurance companies um, and PBMs the ability to, to implement accumulators and such. Mm -hmm. And President Biden has issued an executive order directing the Department of Health and Human Services to review these issues. And I don't think there's been a lot of movement regarding them. Even recently, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services issued some new rules on benefits, and they were silent on copay accumulators. Yeah. Is there a reason? Is it a reluctance or just process? What's holding back action on these issues? That is a great question, Brian. And we have worked with a coalition called the All Copays Count Coalition exactly on this. Every time, every year over the last few years, when there has been an opportunity to address copay accumulators, we have strongly encouraged CMS to do so. And there has been a reluctance. I'm not sure it's an oversight or a process thing. I, you know, plans want to lower their costs. Um, there are many out there who simply do not like the ability for pharmaceutical manufacturers to provide drug coupons. Um, there are some who believe that drug coupons are just a vehicle to um, enable companies to continue to raise their drug prices, um, just get more and more folks on their branded medications. For us, we think it's a good thing if people can start treatment. Right. And oftentimes that coupon um, enables someone to do so. And oftentimes there is no option. Um, there's no there's no generic equivalent. So hard to know exactly why it hasn't happened. And for that reason, that's why we are advocating for this federal legislation. Um, which is the Help Copays Act. It is bipartisan. It's been introduced on the House side, um, HR 830. It's been introduced on the Senate side, S1375. We're gaining more and more traction every single day. People in, in Congress are, are signing on to it. Um, so we're hopeful. Um, it may be if to, to get this across the finish line that it needs to be included in a more um, robust package that's addressing PBM reform. And we know that Congress right now is very interested in PBM reform. Um, so we're just keeping our fingers crossed um, that we, you know, we can get the, the federal legislation moved forward. 
as I said earlier, you know, 19 states, DC and Puerto Rico have already passed legislation. So there's interest, there's knowledge that these practices hurt patients. So um, I encourage, you know, all patients, providers, patient groups to speak to their elected officials to encourage the Help Copays Act to be passed. We actually, on our website, which is panfoundation.org, under the advocacy, we have a, an online campaign. People can, can go there today and with a click of a button, sign a letter or get a letter sent to their members of Congress, encouraging them to pass this bill. I'll make sure I include a link to that in our show notes. It's, it's really important that people get involved in this and, and make sure that their voices are heard, because if not directly for oneself, I'm sure everybody knows someone who is either in this situation or are going to be in the future. And so it's yeah. that it's it's addressed and that there is some action moving forward. Yeah. And we we also encourage patients to share their stories. Sometimes it's hard to get stories, especially around copay accumulators or even alternative funding programs. But those stories kind of bring the issue to life, especially for people right. on the so it's it's important for patients to do that as well. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. Uh, thank you for the work that you do and all the effort that PAN puts into helping people get care. Uh, there was a lot of great information, and I think people are going to find it very helpful. So I appreciate you for joining us. Thank you so much, Brian. At the end of the day, we we really do want patients to know that there's assistance out there. And again, thank you to the Samira Foundation. We work very closely with the foundation. You know, we focus on the financial assistance, but we know that the Samira Foundation does so much to help provide the needed education and support to patients. So appreciate that, all that you do, and look forward to continuing to work together. Fantastic. Have a great day. Thank you. You too.